0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, good morning. Welcome to Heritage Christian Fellowship. How's everybody doing? Good, good, good. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors, and man, we're really glad that you're here. We're glad for those of you that can be here in person in the sanctuary and in the overflow. We're always thankful that that we have the technology and the means in the 21st century to to commute and and worship together virtually. So thanks, and welcome to those men and women who are tuning in online. Um, You know, uh, Heritage, we have been in a sermon series going back in September through the Gospel of Mark. And today we're going to find ourselves in Mark uh, chapter 4 and 5. And we're calling this series, uh, uh, Son of God, Suffering Servant, as we look at the life, the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And and as we've been journeying through this this book of the Bible, we've been looking at who Jesus is, as, as Mark has been giving us this depiction of Jesus in the first eight chapters or so of the gospel. Today we're going to see another depiction of Jesus. We're going to see his power. In in some new ways that we have not yet seen, and we're going to be in a rather large text. So I encourage you to open up to chapter four of Mark. We're going to begin in verse thirty-five. But but rather than read the whole text up front, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of work through the text as I preach the message, and we'll read it verse by verse as we go. But there's a couple things I want you to notice and look for as we're studying this passage today. As we read today, we are going to see the power of Jesus uh, over nature and over evil. Or, Or said another way, we're going to see the power of Jesus over the natural. And over the supernatural. And we're going to see how different people, that's kind of the big idea of the passage, is the power of Jesus. We see these different aspects of his power. And then we're going to see these different characters in these two chapters responding and reacting to the power of Jesus in different ways. And what we're going to notice, we're going to see four different characters in in the text today that are begging Jesus for something. So we're going to look for what are people begging Jesus for in our passage. And ultimately, we're going to wrestle with, we're going to think about, we're going to consider what it means for you and for me as followers of Jesus to beg for more of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would meet us in this place this morning as we open up your word, as we meet with you in the pages of Scripture. God, we are thankful for this opportunity, God. God, we're thankful that we live in a place and in a time where we can just freely come down to a church and we can gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We can, we can lift up our voices in song and exalt you in our hearts and minds. We can open up the living word of God and we can read from, sit under, learn from, be transformed by the preaching of your word. God, meet us in this place today. And God, as we look at this text and as we look at our lives, God, would you bring conviction and clarity, confession, repentance, godliness in our lives. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I very clearly remember begging God for a certain girl. (laughs) Maybe you can identify. Uh, Her name wasn't Becky. I I believed that I was in love. I believed that I couldn't live without this certain young lady. And uh, and you could have not convinced my 18-year-old self that it was God's will that we not be together. I was convinced in my mind that this girl needed to be mine. She was my means of significance. She was the place where I found worth and value in some form of love. I was a broken kid. I was looking for love, the kind of love that no person is capable of offering. Maybe you've been there. Over the years, as this relationship got highly and highly unhealthy, it spiraled, and I was miserable, and often I would find myself by myself with tears begging God to make her mine. Begging God to make this girl mine, but God did not make her mine. It was in the heartbreak of that failed relationship that God actually grabbed a hold of my heart in a real way for the first time. I wrote down on my notes today that the soil from which new life in Christ was able to take root was cultivated in those heartbreaking moments when it appeared as if God was ignoring my pleas. I'm sure that many of you can can relate to a broken heart and having to live with a broken heart. I learned the hard way that love that I was looking for was not going to be met in human form. It was not going to be satisfied in a human relationship. And so God lovingly chose not to answer my pleading prayers, and now I get it. Yesterday, it was 23 years ago, yesterday that I got down on a knee and asked Becky to be my wife. And I look now, I'm so thankful that God did not answer my pleading prayer 28 years ago to make this other girl mine. She's a fine girl, just wasn't the one God had for me. God had something so much better in store for me. And as I was begging for human love, I did not yet realize I just simply needed more of Jesus. I was looking for love in all the wrong places. I did not yet realize as I was begging for that human love that what I really was in search for was more of Jesus. Jesus. Have you ever begged God for something? I mean, to honestly, at a gut level, beg God for something? I'm sure you all have those times in your life where you've begged God for silly things that now in time look trivial and embarrassing. Maybe you've begged God to help you pass a test. And I hate to admit that I've begged God to help my sports team win. As stupid as that sounds, maybe you have begged God for that special someone. But my guess is, honestly, if we were able to sit down in a a place of trust and vulnerability and we were beginning to kind of prod at each other's lives, my guess is that there's just about every one of us in this room, in a very real and honest and heart-wrenching way, has begged God in desperation and in a moment of significant pain. Perhaps you have begged God to protect you or someone you love, in the midst of terrifying and harrowing circumstances. Perhaps you've begged God to give you the strength to carry out a seemingly impossible and utterly overwhelming task. Maybe you've begged God to give you the fortitude and the steadfastness to endure seasons of unimaginable unimaginable pain and unimaginable loss. And perhaps, most desperately, you have begged God to intervene and save the life of someone you love. I guess as we've all been there. Where is God when we plead with him in prayer? As we look at our text today, beginning in verse 35, we're going to begin to see pictures of different characters that are pleading with God. How can we beg for God for the right things? In our text today, we're going to see the pleading of many and we're going to learn much. If you look at me at verse 35 of chapter 4, we're going to see the first point of the sermon. If you're a note taker, I would encourage you to write this down. Here we see in chapter 4, we see the disciples begging Jesus in faithless desperation. Here in the end of chapter 4, we see the disciples begging Jesus in faithless desperation. Look at verses 35 and 36 of chapter 4. On that day... When evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. If you look at just some of the details contained in these two verses, it was on that day, evening had settled in, Jesus makes a command to go to the other side, they leave the crowd, the disciples take Jesus in the boat just as he was, there's other boats with them. Those are so many just unique and, and almost unnecessary details. The details of, of this account in Mark just smack of eyewitness testimony. And as we've learned, as we have studied this book, the the Gospel of Mark was written by John Mark, who was a a contemporary, a friend, a companion of the Apostle Peter. And there's scholarly agreement that the, the primary eyewitness source for Mark in writing this Gospel was Peter the Apostle. And so as we hear these accounts, we're hearing Peter's account concerning the life and the ministry of Jesus. In verse 35, we read that on that day they took off. It's been a very long, very taxing day for Jesus. We go all the way back to chapter 3 when this day began. That day began when, when the, the, the scribes were making blasphemous accusations against Jesus. They, they believed that he was controlled by Beelzebub or by, or by Satan himself. And there was a, a hyper-intense confrontation between Jesus and the religious establishment. Later on in that day, the family of Jesus arrived. They tried to take Jesus by force back to Nazareth because they quite literally believed that Jesus was out of his mind. And then Jesus left the home that he was in, most likely Peter's home. He went down to the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Massive crowds assembled. Jesus began to teach in parable. And when the crowds began to press in and got to be too much, he got into a boat. He went out a little ways from the shoreline. And under the hot sun, he taught in parable for the rest of the day. It was a long and brutal day for Jesus. And as the evening approached, he was exhausted. And he gave orders to his men to go to the other side of the lake. Verse 36 says that they left as he was, just as he was. This suggests that Jesus had finished preaching from the boat. He collapsed in exhaustion. They didn't go to the shore for a change of clothes, for fresh food, for rest. He just collapsed in the boat, and he gave the orders to go to the other side of the lake. And then sometime in the night, when they were far from shore, verse 37 tells us us that a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Now, the Sea of Galilee is an interesting place. It is, it is the lowest freshwater lake on the planet. It's almost 700 feet below sea level. And so as this freshwater lake sits below sea level, you have the Mediterranean Sea, this mountain range, and then you have the, Medi- the, the Sea of Galilee. And these winds would blow off the sea up over the mountains and then come down with ferocity and scream across the surface of the lake. It's a very well-known sort of weather pattern that takes place in this region of the world. And no doubt these fishermen who'd spend their life on the boats, on the the water, were aware of these these storms that could come out of nowhere. And on this night, it was the most ferocious storm that any of them had ever seen as it screams across the water with ferocity. And they're convinced that they're going to die. And these are men who knew their way around a boat and knew their way on the water, but they're convinced they're going to die. And in absolute desperation, they look to Jesus, who's asleep on a cushion, and they wake him in fear. We read in verse 38 that, He was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I mean, Jesus was getting in a good nap here. It's been a long day. It's been a brutal day. I mean, he'd done a lot. And it's interesting, because if you look at Jesus sleeping here, you can see the, the, the mystery of the incarnation On display. The incarnation is this amazing mystery, this truth of the Christian doctrine that that in the one man Jesus, there were two natures, both human and divine. We call it the hypostatic union, the incarnation. In the one man Jesus, there was a divine nature and a human nature, and we see both in Jesus in this scene, don't we? We see the human nature of Jesus exhausted and needing rest. He's fully human. We see the divine nature of Jesus sovereignly at peace concerning the effects of the storm because he knew. He was fully God. Ken Hughes puts it this way. He says, We see here a remarkable insight into the incarnation. Though in a moment, Jesus would calm the storm with an extraordinary display of power, he first slept in a weary body. In this grand display, the opposites of weakness and omnipotence do not clash, but they coalesce in a beautiful harmony too magnificent to be the product of human imagination. And though the text doesn't tell us if Jesus was annoyed necessarily, I think we can see him being annoyed, getting woken up from a nap. I, I, in my family, it's, you just don't wake me up from naps. It never ends well. Uh, I, is anybody here get woken up? and be like you're like wild for a few minutes, for like the first three seconds, as if your house is being assaulted or attacked by like wild beasts. So my family now, they're at the point where they take like a broom handle. Dad, get up. <laughs> Dad, get up. And I'm like, Ah! Jesus doesn't seem to be too happy to get woken up in the way in which he's woken up. But Mark tells us in verses 39 and 40 that he woke up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And then he says to the disciples, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? I think we need to imagine this scene more honestly than maybe we we tend to. Maybe we think of this scene on flannel graphs or in the pages of a picture of a Bible, as a, as a children's Bible, like a word picture of a Bible. But just think about this very authentically and very honestly. Think of the absolute terror these men felt. Like I said earlier, these were these were skilled fishermen who'd spent much of their life on the water. They knew their way around the Sea of Galilee. They knew these waters well. And yet it is so bad and so terrifying in the darkness as the wind is howling and the waves are crashing over the boat and, and it's filling with water and they think they're going to sink. They're convinced of their death. They're yelling at each other in horror and in desperation they start to yell at Jesus, don't you care that we're going to die? And a few moments later after Jesus simply speaks three words, peace, be still, it's over. And now they sit there, just dumbfounded, still soaking wet, They're still trembling in the aftermath of a near-death experience. Their mouths are hanging open. The calm sea and night air is unmoving all around them, and they cannot, they just cannot believe what they just saw. Nothing short of a miracle. Nothing short of supernatural. Verse 41, at the end of the chapter, we read that they, they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, Who is this? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Even though they had seen Jesus do some miraculous things, he had healed the sick, he had casted out demons, he he had spoken and preached with authority, this thing that he did on the sea on that night was on a whole other level. There was something revealed about Jesus in this moment that was new. They had never experienced it before. And so in a rhetorical sense, knowing that there's really no adequate answer to their question, in awe, they utter amongst themselves, who is this man? The wind and the waves listen to him? When they saw the power of Jesus over nature, the text tells us they were afraid. After seeing the power of Jesus, they had, they had reverent fear and an astonished marvel. They had just experienced the power of Jesus in the midst of catastrophe, utter catastrophe. I read this week that the storm was essential to their spiritual development here we see a principle of universal and spiritual application. And, and we all know this well, right? Without difficulties, without trials, without stresses, and even failures, we would never grow to be what we should become. Storms are a part of the process of spiritual growth. We all know this by experience. And it took these men begging in faithless desperation to learn that they could, they could reach out to Christ in faithful expectation. They saw the power of Jesus graciously on display, and they learned that they could call on him. I imagine the original audience to Mark's gospel. Most scholars believe that it was the the church of Rome that was being persecuted by Nero in the Roman Empire. Can you imagine the pressure of the Roman Empire coming down on these new converts? The storms that the early church was in as Mark wrote this gospel? As they read the scroll of Mark, can you imagine what these words must have meant to the church being persecuted in Rome? D.A. Carson said it's not difficult to imagine what effect this story had on the members of the persecuted Roman church Mark wrote this gospel for. It assured them that the strong Son of God would go with them into the storm, into opposition, and into trial. I know I asked this question a few moments ago, but have you begged Jesus in desperation? Perhaps you have begged Jesus in desperation, believing that he was asleep and uncaring. There are moments in your life and there have been moments in my life that I've cried out to God and it sometimes feels, if I'm honest, that God is oblivious to our misery. In those desperate moments, it's all too easy to come to the wrong conclusion that that you're alone, that God doesn't care, it's not true. It's easy to believe the lie that no one, not even God, knows and cares about what's happening in your life, knows and cares about what you're feeling, but he knows. He absolutely knows. He He is God. He knows the trials you face. He knows the thoughts you think. He knows the pain you feel. He knows the emotions that wash over you. And just as Jesus knew the needs of the, and the fears of those men on that night, on that teeny little boat bobbing up and down in the Sea of Galilee, he is with you when the waves of this world toss you to and fro. Jesus is with you on that boat. He's, he's with you, and there's not a molecule of your being, and there's not a moment that goes by that he is not fully aware of. Storms are a necessary part of our faith. And though we see the disciples begging Jesus in faithless desperation, when we find ourselves desperate in begging, may we beg for more of Jesus. The next thing we see is chapter 5 begins. The second thing I would encourage you to write down is we see the demons begging Jesus in godless rebellion. We see the demons, they are begging Jesus in godless rebellion. We see this in verses 1 through 13. Look with me first at verses 1 through 5, here in chapter 5. They, the disciples and Jesus, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Verse 3. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles In pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. I read this week that Jesus came straight from his confrontation with the storm in nature to confront an equally violent storm in human nature. And what a vivid picture Mark paints for us. He dedicates five verses to just helping us understand the absolute deplorable way in which this man was living. He lived among the tombs surrounded by dead corpses, this demon-possessed man. He was filled with unclean spirits, and he was infamous in the region, infamous among the locals, saying that no one could bind him. No no doubt many had tried to bind him, but none could. No matter how strong the shackles, no matter how thick the chains, this tormented man was was able to wrench the the restraints apart. He shredded the shackles and chains, and he had otherworldly strength. All of the strongest men from across the region no doubt had tried their hand, but none were strong enough to subdue this demonically possessed strong man. And so he was left to roam the tombs and the surrounding mountains, naked and filthy and covered in blood and wounds, screaming, torturous scream, cries of horror bouncing off the hillsides and the houses of the region. Can you see him there? Can you imagine this ghastly image, gnashing and bashing and cutting and tearing at his skin with stones, perhaps in an attempt to cut free the demons that so awfully oppressed him? I mean, it'd be, it'd be hard for us to imagine something more ghastly, something more torren- horrendous or, 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 or torturous than this. And as we gaze upon this man's torturous existence, wandering through tombs and over mountainsides, we begin to understand just how much Satan hates God. He'll do anything to attack humankind. We learned in Genesis last fall that we are created in the image of God, and God is no doubt glorified the more we as human beings manifest His glory manifest his image. Satan hates this. And so Satan, in his minions, they are hell-bent on destroying and distorting and perverting the image of God and man. This demon-possessed man, this naked man who is ravaged, is a depiction of just how committed Satan is to his craft. Can you see him? Can you see this strong man that none can bind? And it reminds us of something Jesus says, if you've been tracking with us, back in chapter 3. Do you remember Jesus said in chapter 3 to the scribes, Do you remember as he was telling them what his purpose was when he came? They were accusing him of being in partnership with Satan. And Jesus said, how can I be in partnership with Satan? I came to destroy Satan. And he spoke to them in parable in chapter 3, verse 27. He said, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And then here just in the same day or the next day on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, we see Jesus binding the strong man. We learned a few weeks ago that the strong man is Satan. The house is the kingdom that he dominates here on earth. His goods are the helpless victims whom he holds in bondage through his demons and only one who is stronger than Satan can free the victims and that is exactly what Jesus has come to do. The collective strength of many men could not bind him. Chains and shackles were no match but something powerful and interesting happens the moment the feet of Jesus touch the shore. Look with me at verses 6, 7, and 8. And when he the demonically possessed man. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. At the very sight of Jesus, this strong man, this, this, this infamous beast that wandered the hills and the tombs, at the very sight of Jesus, he runs and he falls before Christ, an act of respect because the demons recognize that they are confronted by one who is greatly superior than they are. And what chains and shackles and armies of strong men could not do, Jesus brings into full surrender by simply stepping ashore, not even a contest. And all who watch this unfold know beyond a shadow of a doubt that surely Jesus came to bind the strong man. Surely Jesus came to defeat Satan. The demoniac calls out, son of the most high God. He's reciting the title of Jesus, not as a declaration of the deity of Christ, but as a means to somehow gain the upper hand. It was believed in that time, if you use someone's title, you could actually have an upper hand by using their name, but Jesus has none of it. Instead, in chapter or verse 9, Jesus asked the man, what is your name? And the man replies in verse 9, My name is Legion, for we are many. What a chilling admission. To the the, the Jewish mind, a Roman legion consisted of 6,000 soldiers, 150 highly trained specialists. To the Jewish mind, the word legion, it brought this image of great numbers of efficient organization and of relentless strength. I read this week that a host of evil spirits leered upon Christ from behind the poor man's wild eyes. And what's the response of the demons within this man as they're confronted by the power of Jesus, the living God? Well, they beg. Verses 10, 11, and 12. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. Twice we see the word begged, this interchange between he and they indicates that these demons had full control of this man. Recognizing Jesus' power over them, they began to beg Jesus to go into the pigs, and they needed the permission of Jesus to do so. Look at verse 13. So Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowning in the sea. Down the hill, these pigs wildly ran, taking a suicidal plunge into the abyss. I read this week that the demons thus were disembodied and some scholars believe confined to the abyss to await for final judgment. They asked to be sent into the pigs, and Jesus honored their request, and it led to their demise. When the demons saw Jesus, they recognized his power over the supernatural, and they were afraid. In their fear, they begged Jesus in godless rebellion and in the end their begging was their demise oh Lord protect us from a godless rebellion whenever we find ourselves begging may we beg for more of Jesus we have seen two two people begging two characters begging the disciples begging in faithless desperation we've seen the demons begging in godless rebellion thirdly beginning in verse 14 we see the herdsmen write this down begging Jesus to get out of the way In verses 13 through 17, we see these herdsmen begging Jesus to get out of their way. And we need to put ourselves on the hillside that day. It's easy for us to cast stones at these guys and say, how dare you? But we need to put ourselves on the hillside that day to to witness what these herdsmen would have witnessed. Can you imagine how shocking the scene would have been to the locals? There was an infamous wild man who roamed naked through tombs, gnashing at his body with stones. He was bleeding and covered in mud. Everybody in the region, every strong man had tried to subdue this demon-possessed man. They had had no, no luck. They couldn't do it. There was no one strong enough. He was terrorizing the people, and then in a moment... Jesus' feet touched the shoreline and now this man is sitting there clothed and in his right mind it was terrifying to them. And what does it look like? What does it look like to see thousands of demons scream as they exit a man? And go howling across the hillsides and dumping themselves into demons. What was it like to watch a massive herd of grazing pigs leap to demonic animation and with the the deafening squeals of swine plummet down a mountainside and suicidally plunge into the abyss? What does that look like? What does that do to the person that witnesses that? It was shocking. It was terrifying. It was horrific. It was supernatural. It was devastating. And in their mind, the one who caused all of it was the one who just got off the boat. It was Jesus. He's the one that had the power. This God in the flesh. He was the one who had the power over evil. He sent the swine into the black waters of Galilee. And after witnessing all of this in horror, we pick up in verse 14. The herdsmen fled, told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was and what happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. Why were they afraid? Why weren't they astonished? Why weren't they amazed? Why not be enamored by the power of Jesus? After all, Jesus was the good guy here, right? He, he came and he delivered the tormented man. He destroyed the evil spirits. But there's more going on here. we got to remember the pigs, don't we? These pigs belonged to these herdsmen, and Jesus had just upended their entire livelihood. This region of the Gerasenes on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, it was was on the other side of the lake from what was traditionally the the overtly Jewish side. The strictly Jewish side. And over here on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, it was infamously a place where Jews and, and, and Gentiles commingled. It was an unsavory place according to Jewish tradition. Very likely that there were apostate Jews who had abandoned the faith who were living as the Gentiles live, And as we know... Pork and pigs were an unclean animal. And so we can see how this might have been a place where there was open rebellion against God. I read this week that it may very well be that the swine herders were compromising compromising Jews who saw great profit in selling pork to the Gentile market on the eastern side of the lake. If this was so, then Jesus was taking a swipe at their secularism, their godless vocation, and their materialism. So in light of all that Jesus had done in their midst, they weren't drawn to the goodness of Jesus, the herdsmen. They weren't drawn to the authority of Jesus. They weren't enamored at the power of Jesus. We read in verse 17 that they begin to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Get out of here. Jesus was in their way. How many thousands of dollars were sitting at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee with those thousands of pigs? How many livelihoods were upended on that day? The combination of seeing the wild man transformed and their livelihoods up instilled unparalleled fear. And to these men, to these herdsmen on that day, they had seen enough. And so they say to Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, they say, get out. You're disrupting my life. You're disrupting my plans. You're disrupting my lifestyle. You're disrupting my bank account. You need to go. Get out of the way, Jesus. I can remember a number of years ago, when I was a pastor, youth pastor, and then after I became a senior pastor at this church I worked at, there was a young man who was an atheist, and he he was became spiritually curious. He, he ended up coming to faith in Christ, and had a really awesome sort of conversion story. Really, really, really bright young man, and and immediately became very passionate and zealous for his faith. And I remember before I moved to plant a church in Milwaukee, he asked me to baptize him. He was a senior in high school at this point, and so it was wintertime in Wisconsin, so you don't baptize because you just be pushing people into the ice. And so we went to the local hotel where they had a hot tub, and, and a bunch of people came to watch this young man get baptized. I was really excited to baptize him. His conversion story and his, and his, uh, his zeal for Christ was, 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 uh, it was kind of taking the high school over. There's a little movement that was taking place. And it was pretty awesome. And as I'm getting ready to baptize him, I knew his father— his father and his mother, um, after their son had become a Christian, started kind of infrequently to attend the church I pastored. And I'm talking to his dad as we're walking to the hot tub, and there's probably 20 or 30 high school kids there to, to witness the baptism of this young man. And his dad says to me, like, you've got to talk him out of this, this craziness. Like, you know, he, he's, he's pre-med, Paul. Like, he's a smart kid, and he's talking about being a missionary. This is, I mean, it's, it's okay to be religious, but he's just taking it a little bit too far. You need to talk to him sense into our son. In other words, Jesus had gotten in the way of this man's plans for his son. It was an awkward moment. How might you and me do the same? In what ways do we tell Jesus to get out of the way? As you survey the landscape of your life, in what ways might you, might me, might we say to Jesus, you're disrupting my life, you're disrupting my plans, you're disrupting my relationships, you're disrupting my preferences, you're, you're, you're getting in the way of my lifestyle, you're disrupting my bank account, you need to Go get out of the way. Oh, God, protect us from such foolish begging. We've seen disciples beg. We've seen demons beg. We've seen the the herdsmen beg for Jesus to get out of the way. But the truth is for us here today, if we're going to beg Jesus for anything, may we beg for more of Jesus. And finally, that's what we see in the last depiction. The last few verses, beginning in verse 18, we see the delivered man begging Jesus for more of Jesus. We see the man who has been delivered of the legion of demons. We see him begging Jesus for more of Jesus. Look at verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, Jesus, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. This man who had been delivered wanted more of Jesus. And understandably, who wouldn't? I mean, imagine the torment this man had been under for God knows how long, and Jesus was the one who delivered him. He he was the one who who, who would graciously relieve this man of this unspeakable torment, and the man was aware of his weaknesses, and he was filled with grateful love. Who wouldn't want to stay with Jesus? But Jesus had different plans for the man. Look at verses 19 and 20. Jesus did not permit him. But said to the man instead, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis or the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I mean, as bad as this man wanted to remain by the side of Jesus, the Lord turned him down. Jesus said, No. And the denial of Christ became the very avenue that this man would walk in grateful service to Jesus. The reality is this man could experience more of Jesus by testifying to the power of Jesus to others. I mean, I, I imagine this man um, staying behind to minister to his friends. The people that had seen him, like, wait, what? Wait, what? Can you imagine seeing a man for years who roamed in tombs, naked, howling in horror, and then seeing him in his right mind and testifying to the one who had the power to deliver him? What that must have done among his friends and among these ten cities on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee? The delivered man was experiencing more of Jesus by being on mission for Jesus. And think about what Jesus said in the Great Commission. At the end of Matthew's gospel, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples before he ascends into heaven, he says to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Those on mission for Christ are experiencing more of Christ. He is with them always to the end of the age. I'm reminded that sometimes going on mission for Jesus means staying where he planted you. Sometimes going means staying. And that's what this delivered man did. He heralded the news of Jesus in these ten cities, and everyone marveled, Mark tells us. What does it look like for us to herald the news of Jesus where God has us, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, in our schools, in our homes, in our families? You know, coming up in a couple of weeks, we're going to be entering the Christmas season. And in the last four Sundays leading up to Christmas Eve, we're going to be taking a break from Mark. We're going to be going into another series. We're calling it Giving the Greatest Gift. We're going to spend four weeks as a church asking that question of what does it look like for us to be on mission for Jesus right where God has planted us? How do we go uh, as the people of God? To, to, to how, do we, how does God transform our hearts that we might be burdened for the unbelieving among us? How can we go from seeing the stranger as a neighbor, seeing the neighbor as a friend, and leading our friends to the family of God? How can we do that effectively for the glory of God? So we're going to spend four weeks heading into the Christmas season asking that exact question, asking God to equip us and prepare us as the people of God in the Rogue Valley to give the greatest gift, to give the gospel, to give the hope of salvation to our neighbors and friends, to be like this man who Jesus said, no, 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 no. you're going to stay behind, and you're going to go, and you're going to declare the goodness of God to those people who need to know it. And it was actually by staying as a herald for Jesus that this man shared Jesus with others, and more and more people experienced more and more of Jesus. And so we see this whole scene, right? We're done. We see the power of Jesus on display in all these verses. The disciples begged Jesus in faithless desperation. The demons begged Jesus uh, in godless rebellion. The herdsmen were begging Jesus to get out of the way, and the delivered man was begging Jesus for more of Jesus. And notice who Jesus said yes to. And notice who Jesus said no to. When the faithless disciples begged in desperation, Jesus said yes, and he calmed the storm, and then he rebuked them for having no faith. When the evil legion of demons begged to be placed in pigs, Jesus said yes, and he placed them in the pigs. When the, delivered, or when the herdsman begged Jesus to depart, Jesus said yes, and he got on the boat and he went away. However, when the delivered man begged to go with Jesus, he said No. And he sent the man to tell his friends of the mercy he had been shown. The only one Jesus said no to is the one you think he'd want to say yes to. The one guy who seems to be the righteous guy who got it right in this this scene is the one guy Jesus says no to. When the delivered man saw and experienced the power of Jesus, he was transformed. And Jesus knew that he could experience more of Jesus by being on mission for Jesus. And ultimately, Jesus no to that man's request was actually a yes to much greater things. Oh, if we could understand that truth that sometimes the no of Jesus is a yes to much greater things that we can't yet comprehend. How many prayers have you and I prayed, wanting Jesus to say yes, begging Jesus to say yes, but he has said no? This delivered man was begging for more of Jesus. May we too beg for more of Jesus. I'm sure there's many of you here who have, who have begged for Jesus. Maybe there's some of you here today who are in the midst of a season where there is some acute pain in your life and you are begging Jesus for deliverance, for help, for direction, for understanding, for a door to open, for a door to close, for light to shine, for, for, for the ashes to become beauty, for the darkness to become light. Maybe you're hearing no. His no might actually be a yes to something much greater. I've shared with a few of you this morning that my mom, as many of you know, my mother has been sick for for about 13 months. When I moved here, the day before I, I got in my car to drive to Medford, my mom had collapsed, and the ambulance her to the hospital in Wisconsin where she lives, and they saw some tumors in her lungs, and a long, it's been a long 13 months for my mom. In and out of ER. She had COVID. just a, She had shingles. But finally, this all culminated about a week and a half ago when my mom was finally able to get into the surgeon and they had to remove uh, the two, two lobes of her right lung. The 60% of her right lung was surgically taken out. We prayed we prayed that the surgery would be as, as least invasive as possible. Didn't want my mom, she's in her mid-70s, to have to get cracked open and deal with the trauma of that. They got four hours into the surgery and we got the tech side. We had to open her up. <sighs> we were just so, so bummed by that. They removed the upper and the middle lobe of my mom's lung, and, and we were really, really worried about her. She's not the strongest person physically. It's been a long 13 months. And then uh, we got to FaceTime. Me and my siblings and my mom, we got to FaceTime on Facebook, and my mom figured out how to do the filters on her face, and we were, it was hilarious. Here she is, you know, 48 hours removed from having an organ removed, and she's, she's putting these silly filters on her face, and we're laughing, having a great time. We all felt really good. The doctors made sure they did some biopsies on the tissue around the lung. We really believed that that cancer was contained to her lung. And then on Thursday, she got the call that the cancer spread outside of her lung. And uh, we just don't know how bad it is right now. We didn't, we prayed that there would be no cancer, but there's there's cancer. And it's in my mom's body today. As we speak today, my mom, a couple days ago, had to get rushed back to the ICU. Her stitching in her lung broke and she bled internally, leaked air internally. She's in unspeakable pain and her body is filled with there. air. There's a vacuum, and, and she meets with the oncologists on Tuesday to figure out what, if any, plans there are for the cancer. Isn't that how it often is, right? It'd be, I would love if I could share, like, a Hallmark story and tie a bow on it this morning, how God fixed it all. My mom lived to 120. I don't know what God's plans are for my mom. I know I don't have a Christian Hallmark bow on this story this morning, even as we begged God to do certain things he chose not to. My mom knows, and I know, and we as a family know, that her greatest need is not relief from pain. It's not the eradication of cancer in her abdomen. Her greatest need is more of Jesus. Certainly, we would love to see the eradication of cancer and the relief from pain. But all along with my mom, we have been begging along with her for more of Jesus. And by whatever means necessary, we ask God to have his way. Of course, we hope my mom gets cancer free and lives uh, many more years but whether god chooses to answer our prayers as we ask them or if he has a greater yes that we may not yet fully understand we need to remember that life is found exclusively in jesus forgiveness is found in jesus transformation is only found in jesus eternal healing is only found in jesus hope is only found in jesus we need more of him May we as a church beg for more of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, so thankful that you are a sovereign God who knows tomorrow before we do. You know all things. You're at work in our midst. God, may our prayers be prayers that that willfully submit to your will. God, with open hands, may we come before you as we beg you for for deliverance, as we beg you for healing, as we beg you for intervention, God, as we beg you to do what only you can do, God, give us faith to respond rightly to the way in which you choose to answer those. And God, I pray for our church. God, I pray for us as the body of Christ, God, that we would be desperate for more of Jesus. God, that we would pursue after you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, God. God, I pray that we would experience more of you when we go on mission for you. God, would you bring glory to yourself in and through our church? Make yourself known to us. God, we love you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.